the Ask Anything podcast because some things are better said than read. My name is Peter LaRuffa, and today I'm going to be answering this question. What does it mean to treat someone as a Gentile and a tax collector? And so the question comes in with regards to what I assume is from Matthew 18 and verse 17, which says, uh, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, here it is, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And so this is a portion of Scripture that people commonly refer to when it comes to looking at the concept of church discipline. Church discipline is a biblical concept of how a church would lovingly come alongside a person who is willingly charging after sin, refusing to repent, wanting to live a life that is unbecoming of a Christian, and running far into sin. And so uh, the church is called upon to care for this person by going after them, by asking them to repent, by coming alongside them, and by ultimately calling them to task, not to please the church, but to please the Lord with their life. Uh, The vast majority of churches these days, I don't think, practice church discipline, or they say they practice it, but in reality, they don't practice it. It might be in their books or in their statement of faith or in their constitution and bylaws, but in reality, they find a way to wiggle their way out of it. It's incredibly uncomfortable. It's uh, incredibly difficult uh, to do. It's actually a lot like disciplining your own children. You know you're doing the right thing, but it doesn't necessarily feel good, or it shouldn't feel good as you're doing it, but you trust in the Lord that you're doing the right thing, and He's going to use it for His glory and for their good. And so as I answer this question about what it means in verse 17 to when it says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, I want to quickly go back to the beginning of the chapter to give you a little bit of context as to what Jesus is talking about uh, in this chapter and in this uh, portion of his ministry so that we can better build up to verse 17. There's 16 verses preceding it. Let's see what Jesus was talking about, just in broad brushstrokes. And so if you go back to the beginning of the chapter, Matthew 18 and verse 1, it says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so nowhere in the scripture uh, does God tell us to be childish. God wants us to grow. God wants us to be mature in our faith. God wants us to be uh, strong in grace and wisdom and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what the Apostle Peter tells us. Um, But we're not supposed to be childish. But honestly, if you're not childlike, you're never going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, If you don't have the humility of a child, the meekness of a child, the faith of a child, not in a childish way, but in a childlike way, uh, that person is never going to come into the kingdom of heaven because they are going to be uh, too certain and too sure of themselves. They're not going to be able to put their faith in something that they don't see. Uh, They're going to think those are childish ways, and so they're not going to see that as something that they need to do or ought to do. And so here Jesus is saying, don't be childish, but you need to be childlike. Only people who are in some ways childlike has the faith of a child, the meekness of a child, the humility of a child, the willingness to learn uh, as a child. Those are the people who come into the kingdom of heaven. And then that illustration of a child is carried through uh, for several more verses. So verse 5 of Matthew 18 says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, 
it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of a sea. Now, many people now think this is Jesus talking about his love for children, and he's not. Jesus does love children, but this is a metaphor. This is an illustration that he's carrying through. And so if you think he's just talking about his love for children, you're not necessarily wrong. Jesus does love children, but you'll be missing the forest for the sake of the trees. This is not talking about how bad it is to cause children to stumble or sin. This is talking about how bad it is to cause any Christian, maybe here you might even say new Christians, but any Christian, because that's who the child is representative of from the first four verses. So how bad it is to cause someone else to sin. We ought not cause each other to sin. We ought to encourage each other and spur one another on toward love and good deeds uh, in a way that is pleasing to God, like we read about in Hebrews chapter 10. Picking it up in verse 7, uh, Jesus says this, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. So you see, he's gone from talking about uh, the disciples are arguing over who's the greatest, and he's like, you shouldn't try to be arguing about who's the greatest. You should be talking about who is the least among you, who is the most childlike among you. Those are the people who receive the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to talk about the danger of causing somebody to sin. It would be better for them to have a millstone around their neck thrown into the depths of the sea. We don't want to cause each other to sin. Now, with that same theme, he says uh, in Matthew 18, verse 7, uh, that temptation it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. Similarly, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. So you'll notice in these two, this is the concept of what we call radical amputation. Go to whatever length you need to do to make sure that sin is far from you. So if something is causing you to sin, cut it out of your life, and not just cut it out of your life and kind of leave it there, cast it far from you. That's what it says in verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. So it's the concept of radically amputating that which causes us to sin from our lives and getting as far away from it as possible. And so you see this case, this theme that Jesus is building here as he continues to teach his disciples about how to be a part of the kingdom, that it's dangerous and not good to cause other people to sin. And in fact, that which is causing us to sin is to be avoided at all costs. He then talks about how to care for the uh, sheep, care for the people of God, with a parable that begins in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Here it is. What do you think, beginning in verse 12? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99, so that never went astray. That, that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Little ones being his sheep, his Christians. Not necessarily children, but little ones being what those children represented, which are Christians, the people of God. And here you see this concept of going after the sheep that is running into danger, going after the member of the flock that is running headlong down a path that is not going to be uh, for that person's good and certainly not going to be for the glory of God. And so here you have this picture of a shepherd who doesn't just say, you know what, I had a hundred sheep before, 
Now I have a hundred ish sheep before, right? 99, a hundred. What's one sheep among a hundred? And Jesus is calling to our attention to say that one sheep matters. Go after that sheep as hard and as fast as you can and bring them back to the fold for the glory of God and for the good of that sheep. And when that person comes back, rejoice. Uh, Verse 13, if he finds it, the shepherd, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. And that's how it is with our Father in heaven. Now we get into the verses in verse 15 and following that typically uh, outline how we carry out church discipline. It is not labeled church discipline. That's just something, a phrase that we have come up with over thousands of years to talk about this particular portion of Scripture and this process. It's kind of like the subject headings in your Bible. They're not inspired. Neither are the verse numbers or the chapter numbers. It's just a helpful way of referring to this concept of what it means to, to actually go after that sheep. So let's forget about sheep, and let's now talk about people. How do we go after that one, and how do we care best for the 99 as well? Verse 15 says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And so if your brother or sister in the, in the Lord has sinned, go and show them their fault. Show them where they might be off so that they might see. Maybe they're unaware. We all have blind spots. There's been so many times that people call something to my attention that I would have never known had they not been kind enough to come and tell me, I think here's where you're off. I think here's where your thinking is off. Your acting is off. This is not conduct that is becoming of a Christian, and I'm so grateful for that. That's what this verse is telling us to do. If your brother sins, if your sister sins, don't just be like that's between him and God. Help him. Because it's between him and God, because it's between her and God, show them their fault, and then if they hear you, and they say, you're right, I'm so glad, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change what I'm doing, I'm going to change my ways, I'm going to bring my life more back in line with the Scriptures. Great. Matthew 18, verse 15 says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. What if he doesn't? Verse 16 says this, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the, te- by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so this brings into uh, our minds two things. Uh, number one, it harkens back to the Old Testament, to, the, to God's law as it was given to Moses. Uh, I think it's in Deuteronomy and several other places that uh, every, uh, the testimony of witnesses would be established. The te- somebody's testimony would be established by uh, two or three witnesses. That's being referred to here in Matthew 18 and verse 16 and goes back to, I think, Deuteronomy 19 and elsewhere in the, uh, in the Pentateuch. And so one of the reasons is, okay, you went to this person by yourself, they didn't hear you. Now take some others along so that they can also be witnesses with you about the effort that you're making and the person's refusal to repent or to acknowledge what you're saying. But here's something else. Maybe the person thinks that you're just out of your mind. You're judgmental. You don't have a clue. Maybe the Lord would use a few other people to be like, whoa, uh, John says that I need to change. And I thought that was just him. But now it's John and Tom and Sam. These are three people. They're either all out to lunch, or maybe there's something I need to be given uh, some more attention to. The Lord might use that increased number of people, so slowly increasing that circle of need to know, right, between the person who says you're in sin to now just a few more people to say, hey, you ought not do that. You should walk with the Lord. You should repent. And so that's verse 16, both establishing the testimony by two or three witnesses, as well as hoping and praying that the Lord might use a few more people to get this person's attention. 
then in verse 17, it says, if he refuses to listen to them, so he refused to listen to the one, now he's refusing to listen to the few, tell it to the church. And so what does that mean? Well, Jesus is saying, tell it to the church at a time when churches didn't exist. And so that Greek word, ekklesia, tell it to the gathered group of believers, which could be your local church, it could be a community group. What is the most proximate group of local believers, believers who are close to this person, who are in this person's life to some degree, who would it be? it would be helpful for them to know so that they can be used, hopefully, in restoring this sister or brother to right fellowship with God and with people. And so go with one, go with a few, now tell it to the church. And so in our church, we've had times when we tell it to that person's community group. Sometimes we've had times when we told it to the entire church. Sometimes we have times when we told it to just uh, the specific campus, because our church is a multi-site church, so we just tell it to that specific campus. But it's basically enlarge that circle to a point where now the people who need to know, who need to be praying, who need to be going after this person, now they know and they're able to call this person to repentance, to let them know that they're praying for them, to let them know that they would love for them to be welcome back, to be walking uh, as a child of the light instead of a child of darkness. And then verse 17 says this, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And so that's a very long introduction because that's what this person is asking about. That final step, what does that mean? Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Well, here's what I think it means. Uh, to be a, let's take these two illustrations that Jesus is calling to mind, a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, a Gentile would have been somebody who was born outside of the family of God. They have no uh, connection, no fellowship with the people of God. There were Jews and there were not Jews. And so the non-Jews were Gentiles, people who are outside of the family of God. Uh, so now look at this person as somebody who is a Gentile, as if they're outside of the family of God, someone who has no connection with the Lord evidenced by their refusal to repent after over and over and over again they've been called uh, to repent to walk with the lord to be restored into right fellowship with god and they're still acting like an unbeliever and so the lord is telling us here treat them as a gentile let them be to you as a gentile meaning start realizing that their actions are more uh, it's, it's conduct becoming of a non-christian more than it is becoming of a christian and so you need to make sure that you're not treating this person as if they're just any other believer who's in a right standing with the Lord. Let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. And so we have this idea of a Gentile who is outside of the family of God just by birth, right? Like he or she did not choose to be a Gentile, they are a Gentile. And so then you have this other concept of a tax collector. Now a tax collector, that's someone who chose a career. This is someone who chose to be a tax collector, chose to engage in a, a Ponzi scheme of sorts, if you will, of people who would collect taxes on behalf of the government, but then also overcharge people so that they can skim some off the top for themselves. And so whereas the Gentile is born outside of the family of God, the tax collector chose to be a tax collector. That wasn't something by birth, that was something by choice. And so it's this picture of looking at this person as outside the family of God, but then also as somebody who is choosing to act in a way that is unbecoming of a Christian, just like a tax collector would have chosen that career by choice for their own sordid gain. And so some people are like, well, then what does this mean practically? Well, let me talk about two ditches, and I think we need to come in between. Um, 
One ditch is to say, Jesus loved Gentiles and tax collectors, therefore we just need to love this person just like Jesus would have. And I get that. Jesus did love Gentiles and tax collectors. This is not just somebody who is a Gentile who didn't hear the gospel and hasn't come to Christ. This is not just a tax collector, even as Matthew was, as Jesus who went up to Matthew and said, come follow me, and then he left everything and followed him. This is not the exact same thing. This is somebody who knows the right way, who claims to love Christ, who claims to understand his word enough to be a believer, and yet he or she is saying, I know, but I won't do that. And so this is not somebody who is unaware. This is not somebody who is uh, not knowing the things of God. And so to treat this person like a lost family member or a lost coworker or a lost neighbor, and just to say, oh, I guess they just need the love of Christ, I don't think that's exactly what God is calling us to do. In fact, let me call to your attention a verse from Hebrews chapter 6, or several verses from Hebrews chapter 6. Okay, here it is, verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have, listen, once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and who have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to content. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying there is this, for someone who understands the gospel, who has uh, been enlightened, has tasted and seen that the Lord is good, someone who is familiar with the things of God, familiar with the Word of God. This is not the same thing as somebody who has never heard of Christ, was unaware of the gospel, and just is unaware of how they need to be acting, and you're calling this to their attention. This is different. This is somebody who is well aware of how the Lord would have them act, and they say, yep, I know that, and I'm still not going to do it. Yep, no, I know the gospel. I know that Jesus Christ was crucified for a sinner like me. I know that he rose from the grave on the third day. I know those things. Okay, are you going to repent? I'm definitely not going to repent. This is somebody who is has a high-handed, stiff-necked rebellion about them who knows the way that God would have them act and yet is choosing to do so uh, anyway. So I would say this is not the same situation as a Gentile or a tax collector who's just L-O-S-T lost, right? Just unaware. The other ditch is people say, you should shun them. Uh, that's, what the, that's what you would have done to Gentiles or tax collectors. That's what the Jews would have done to Gentiles or tax collectors. So any Jew hearing that would have known you shun them. You get them out of your life. And I would just say back to that person, when has Jesus said, hey, do what the Jews do? <laughs> right? When has Jesus called to our attention what the Jews do, what the hypocrites do, what the Pharisees do, and said, yeah, be like them? Never. And so we're not to just treat them as if they're any other unbeliever, but we're also not to shun them as a, a hypocritical Jew would do. We're to humbly understand that this person is outside of the family of God. We don't know their hearts, but we do know their actions, and they seem to be acting more like an unbeliever. And to also be aware that this person is choosing to do this. They're willfully choosing to rebel against God and against his word. And therefore, our interactions with this person on the whole and in the main need to be aware of these important facts, that this is not somebody who is behaving in a way that shows that they're of a sound spiritual mind, that they care about the things of God. In fact, they're behaving in a way that shows that they are stiff-necked and rebellious. Now, what do we hope? What's the hope? Uh, so when we treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector, the hope is that as they uh, are uh, alone to some degree with their sin, right, even as the, the prodigal son was alone living in a riotous way, 
that they would come to the end of themselves that they would feel the weight of their sin, that they would miss the, the sweet things of God, the fellowship of God's people, being in God's Word. And even as that prodigal son came to his senses, we read about in Luke 15, in a pig pen, and said, what am I doing with my life? I could, uh, even my father's hired servants are being treated better than this. I'm going to go home. That's what we're hoping would happen to the person who's being treated as a Gentile and a tax collector, that they would, in the slop of their sin, sitting there in the muck and mire of what they think to be the better life, but in reality is not the better life because it's a life of sin and uh, conduct that is not pleasing to the Lord. We're hoping, we're praying that God would use this time to restore them to a right relationship with Him, and they would come to their senses and say, there's no place like home. I need to go home. I need to go to uh, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I need his mercy. I need his grace. I need to repent and be made right with him. And just as that shepherd does for the sheep that has come back to the 99, just as the father in the parable of the prodigal son rejoices, kills the fatted calf, gets a ring, gets a robe, gets shoes for his feet, throws a party for that sinner who has come home, for his son that's come home, Oh, friends, would we rejoice to see somebody restored to a right relationship with the Lord. And guess what? It happens. God honors his word. He does use this process to cause people to come to an awareness of their sin and to be made right with him. And that's what our prayer is as we treat somebody, as we remain faithful to the text of Scripture and carry out this process treating somebody as a Gentile or a tax collector, we do so with hope and faith in Christ that he will cause his word to flourish, uh, to be glorified as we seek to apply it and remain faithful to him, that he would do a great work in the heart and mind of the person who's receiving this disciplinary process. Hope that's helpful to you and helps you to better understand what that verse actually means. I always appreciate your questions. You can ask them anytime through the link on my Instagram profile, uh, or you can look for the stories to be posted on my Instagram stories, usually on a Monday or Tuesday each week. Until next time, I'm Peter LaRuffa, and I hope to see you on the Ask Anything podcast soon.